Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only sports program from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. In the program this week, New Zealand's top triathletes prepare for this weekend's World Cup race in Auckland. New Zealand cricket dismisses match-fixing allegations. New Zealand's netballers head to England for the Fastnet series. And the Wellington Phoenix are at home in Auckland. Some of the world's top triathletes will get a first look at the course for next year's Triathlon World Championship Grand Final when the World Cup series is raced in central Auckland on Sunday. Although many of those who have already qualified for the Olympic Games aren't racing, the New Zealand team is almost at full strength and includes women's world number two, Andrea Hewitt. It's been a less successful year for the men, with only Olympic silver medalist Bevan Doherty having won a World Cup race, so he and the likes of Chris Gemmell and the up-and-coming Ryan Sissons will want to impress in the first Cup race in New Zealand for three years. The swim leg will be in the inner harbour off Queen's Wharf, while the bike and run legs will be in the inner city. Triathlon New Zealand's head coach Greg Frain says although the London Olympics are now less than 10 months away, Sunday's race is more about next October's World Championship Grand Final. Mainly because of the fact that it's on the same course, so it's a good tester, so it gives us a, and it's, you know, a good opportunity to, to race um, over the course, because obviously racing over a course gives you more insight into it than just riding over it or running over it. Um, as far as impacting for London, it's the first opportunity we've had since the season or the season sort of finished to get all the athletes, our key athletes together. And we're doing a lot of planning. There's sort of quite a bit gone on since the grand final in Beijing. And um, yeah, so it's a good opportunity to get together with them. But that's probably about as much as it plays in, in its role towards London. And as far as the, the athletes themselves are concerned, it's been a bit of a mixed year for, for you guys. Perhaps the, the women more successful than the men. So the field for the for Sunday, how does that stack up? Um, I've heard it described as world class, but someone else has said there's um, a number of the top ten guys aren't here, so, and men and women aren't here. So, what's your assessment of it? Well, I feel it's, there's some real class athletes there, but there's not the depth. That's probably how you'd, you'd I'd describe it. So, there's Lauren Vidal, who's regularly in the top. You know, it's Andrea's partner. He's regularly in the top um, group. He's got Arvin Rana, who's used to battle out with Bevan back in the 90s. Um, so they're, they're all there. Um, there's quite a few of the young guys coming through and some of the, the Americans and Canadians have sent their next generation athletes coming through. So that's the men's field. The women's field, it's you know, with, with Andrew there and there's a couple of, there's a Swiss girl there, Melanie Anaheim and a few others who are, so it's a reasonably solid field. But as I said, it's, it's not the depth that we'd see in a, in a World Championship Series race normally. The course, I was looking at it on the map, it's very inner city, but there is that climb up Shortland Street. How hard is it? Oh, it's tough. It's tougher than anything they've done this year. Well, it's tougher than anything they've done probably since Athens Olympics, um, as far as course on the bike. And the swim is going to be cool, which will be a bit of a shock for some of the Europeans and the Asians, actually, to tell you the truth, because obviously we're used to fairly warm water. Um, 
but the the bikers is where the race is going to be decided and uh, i can see it's the, the course is capable of destroying the women's field and probably over half of the, the men's field as well and give the, the strong cyclists a real opportunity to you know to push for a good position in terms of the new zealand women andrea's had a really good season she's what ranked number two in the world at the moment what about the, re- the the rest of the team? She'd obviously be the the, the favourite from a local point of view. What what's what are her biggest opponents likely to be, or who are they likely to be? Yeah, well, the the biggest opponent is probably from Melanie Anaheim. She's a Swiss girl who was um, third in in Beijing in the final. Um, she's had a good end of season, and then um, there'll be there'll be a few. But other than that, Nikki Samuels is you know. Monica, she'll be pushing it. She's a very, very strong cyclist, and she'll be you know, making her play. It's a course that suits her probably better than anything else we had during the year. So, and she's obviously had a little bit of a mixed season this year. So she'll be really pushing for, for you know to reassert herself at the top of the world. That's for sure. When you say it's a, it's a course for cyclists, is that because of the hills? Yeah, it is, and also it's quite technical as well. And there's some good corners in there. Um, if you can push your advantage home on the on the hill by having a corner, a few corners. You know, throwing the rest of the course, will actually you don't get the 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 group or the the impact of a group momentum sort of gaining gaining speed because every time they gain some speed, they've got to go around another corner, they slow down, and so an individual cyclist can actually you know it's a perfect course for an individual cyclist to take the race by its horns and, and yeah take it home. So. so you can't just sit in the peloton and let everyone else do the work. Well, you could do, but um, you'd be very very uh, you'd have to be fairly alert to people who you know might attack because if you get stuck in the peloton, it's going to be hard to chase. You'll be chasing by yourself. You won't. Be any advantages of sitting in the pack really so it's, it's probably backs it a little bit more of a, a, a purist race I guess than, than what we perhaps see in some of the, the more flat courses around the world The, the men's field you've got Ryan Sissons making some fairly uh, uh, optimistic uh, noises about his chances and how do we stack up there? Ryan's probably one of the, the fastest <coughs> progressing as far as his tracking goes and performance of under 23s like last year he was second in the world championships, the under twenty three worlds. Um, this year, he, he had the opportunity to race in the under twenty three worlds again because he's he's still under twenty three, but he chose to race in the elites. And in, in Beijing, in the final, he was fifteenth. Um, um, he had a twenty second in, in London in the selection race, which is a solid race, but not as good as probably what his Beijing race was. But the course itself will suit him well. He's he's quite a powerful, explosive rider. He's only fairly small, but he's very very quick and quite athletic. So the short little climbs up Shortland Street and um, Victoria Street really suit him well. So he won't be sort of exposing the big you know grind out um, that the big strong guys come through. So the course will suit him, and he's a he's a natural gift, naturally gifted runner. So um, yeah, we I think he's you know he can be confident, and we'll see what sort of shape he's in. You know, it's been a long season for the young guys. So. Um, I know he's rested well and yeah, prepared well for this and wants to do well at home. What about the veterans, Bevan and Co? Yeah, never write Bevan off. He's, um, he's a true professional. This, once again, the bike course really suits him. Just a strong, you know, he can, if he's going to go out there and make it hard, it's, it's going to be a hard race. And he, you know, because of the fact that no one can shelter behind, he can make them all suffer no matter what. So Chris is definitely looking to perform well. He's had a mixed season this this year as well, and you know he wants to reassert himself in the top because you know he needs to. Pretty much everyone else needs to needs to get results or back on track and, and heading towards Sydney when the next qualification race is. That's triathlon New Zealand's head coach Greg Frayne talking to Murray Williams. You're listening to Extra Time, a web-only sports program from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. The New Zealand netball team leaves for England on Sunday, chasing their third straight win at the Fast Net World Series. The team will be captained by Irene van Dyke, with regular captain Casey Williams still recovering from injury. 
and Laura Langman being rested. Fastnet is a shortened game format and goals can be scored from outside the goal circle. Despite not having a successful year, having lost to Australia at the final of the World Champs in Singapore and also in a five-match test series, coach Waitamanu says the focus is not simply about winning some silverware in Liverpool. The approach is that it's giving the young ones game time with the old ones to help them through, so ensuring that we don't put a whole lot of youngsters out there and they flounder. Um, that we put some youngsters out there in you know, a, a structure, a, with good structure around them so that they can be successful. So that's what I'm looking at at the moment. How much use are these, or is this type of series, for getting a, a look at some of the, the younger players? Presumably there's, there's some international pressure associated with it, but how much can you learn? Um, well, there's value in um, having them as a group and um, coaching them directly. Um, getting an idea of their ability to take instructions onto the court. So there's all of those things that I wouldn't be able to do um, if they weren't in a team. Um, there's the shorter match time, um, which means that if they are getting into trouble, then it doesn't last for very long. So you know, you're know you able to get them off the court and fix things up and put them back on and have a look and see if they can make the adjustments. So from those perspectives, there's actually a great deal of value. And you've got a couple coming back from injury, I suppose a chance to, to get a look at Katrina Grant? Yes, I'm very keen to get a look at Katrina Grant. <laughs> um, it's been, what, six, uh, five months now since Katrina played. She's, um, I think, a, a really clever defender. Um, and she's really enthusiastic because she hasn't been able to play. So for all of those reasons, I'm looking forward to having her back in the group. What have been your reflections after that, that series against Australia? I think the main reflection is that you know that we've got an issue in the fourth quarter, um, and I'm not going to jump to any conclusions about what that issue is until and so I want to use the camp we're having in January and February next year to really start to sort out what some to, to really start to make some changes to not only um, physical conditioning but looking at match targets, looking at ideal performance state, looking at a variety of things, and really starting to tick those off because you know it's the beginning of a four-year cycle and I really want to be very sure. Um, when we go into the 2012 competition phase, that we're able to say that we are conditioned to the level that we need to be, that our pre-game preparation is what it needs to be, and so on. So starting to tick those boxes off. What sort of feedback did you get from some of the, the leading players after after that series? What I'm talking to you is the product of those conversations. It isn't just my thoughts the um, senior leadership group from that group are, are in agreement with what, what we're talking about, which is um, probably conditioning is an issue that we need to make sure that it's not before we can address the other things. Um, they were pretty pleased. They felt that it was a pretty seamless transition for the, a team that came in and had a new coach, whereas the team remained unchanged. And we talked a lot about target setting and um, a variety of other things which are around the detail of a, of a competition programme and a, a preparation programme. And yes, I, I'm really confident that I'm, um, what I'm expressing to you is, is the, the um, view of the senior players and myself. Conditioning, is that, it seems, it's come up a couple of times, is, is that sort of the, the number one priority, do you think? It is for me in the short term, because I would be really keen to know that that was not an issue um, before we went off and we're looking at other other. Um, reasons for the fourth quarter issues that we had. And in the short term, I think what we are going to do is um, be very clear about um, what the conditioning needs are for an international netballer, particularly adding on the high possibility of um, 
running 75 minutes and 90 minutes with um, with the extra time because it was a close to a 90-minute game in Delhi. Um, making sure that we've got all of that covered, making sure that we have then, we know what a silver spoon should look like and then we're very clear about where each of our players are and working pretty hard in the next um, 12 to 18 months to make sure that we're where we need to be rather than um, just drifting on and, and um, assuming that the standards that we have are the correct standards. So how much change do you think there needs to be and does that suggest that that work wasn't done previously? Um, what it does suggest is that we didn't manage the um, break after the World Championships as well as we should have. Um, I actually thought that the, going into the World Champs we were pretty well prepared physically. So that's that's one thing because our pinnacle events are going to be in the July-August period, um, certainly in this next four-year period, and they will be followed by an international programme. And that's something that we haven't been used to, and I don't think we handled very well this year. Is there maybe a greater need to win this time in the sense that you need some silverware to, to show, given the way the past sort of 12 months has gone? Um, I don't feel that pressure, and I certainly don't think the players do. I'm certainly going in there with the view that I want to um, have, take time to have a look at these youngsters. Um, and see what they look like in conjunction with some of our older players. I'm also very aware that because of the nature of these rules, there can be some relatively fluky kind of wins, so we have to be pretty careful about that. Um, And that in the past we've been criticised for not entering into the festival spirit of this competition, so um, for all of those reasons I don't feel great pressure to bring back some silverware from this competition. Having said that, that's certainly what we'll be aiming to do, with the caveat that we will um, try to get more people on the court than we certainly have in the last two years. New Zealand plays South Africa and England on the opening day of competition, and that starts on Sunday week. You're listening to Extra Time, a web-only sports programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. New Zealand Cricket's rejecting a claim by the sport's former chief anti-corruption investigator that all the sport's leading countries were involved in the fixing of major matches. Lord Paul Condon, the founding head of the International Cricket Council's Anti-Corruption Unit, has told the London Evening Standard that in the late 1990s, Test and World Cup matches were being routinely fixed. He says every international team at some stage had a player doing something funny. But the chief executive of New Zealand Cricket, Justin Vaughan, says he doesn't believe that was the case. Obviously we refute the fact that that New Zealand Cricket played any part of of match-fixing over the last few decades, um, but understand that it has been a a problem for world cricket, and obviously we we are fully endorsing all uh, anti-corruption measures being put in place around cricket in the world. How can you be so sure of that? Oh, you can never be absolutely sure. Um, the ICC's anti-corruption unit has been in place now for quite a while and it puts in place very strict provisions. But as we've seen with recent cases, it is always possible for individuals to try and uh, get around the system. But having said that, we you know, we closely monitor players in the playing environment, have done for a long time now. You can never be 100% sure, but I mean, knowing the players, I mean, I was an active player through till 1997, and I can say with absolute certainty over the course of my time as a player, I never had even the slightest suspicion that players who I was representing my country with uh, had, had anything to do with illicit gambling around cricket. 
was it a topic that ever came up amongst players during the 90s that you can recall? Never, never in my time in the dressing room. I can categorically say it, it never arose. It wasn't even talked about with opposition as things that may appear odd that, that went on. No, no, I can't say I can't say it did. I suppose my time with the New Zealand cricket team finished prior to some of the more uh, extreme cases were revealed, such as Hansi Kroenger. Australian crickets says it's carried out an investigation into as much as it can do over that period. Is there a need for New Zealand cricket to go back and, and revisit that period then? Because, uh, I mean, Condon is talking about, obviously, with the, the ICC corruption unit having been established what mm-hmm. 2000, he talks about this 1990s period as something funny going on amongst all test-playing nations to, to some degree. Mm. Is there a need to go back and revisit that? Uh, personally, I don't think so. I mean, it's not like we had any suspicions related to fixtures or specific actions of New Zealand players, so I can't see any need for us to devote time or money to such an exercise when we have absolutely no suspicion of, of wrongdoing. That period, uh, there were matches that perhaps have been linked to things going on, not necessarily with New Zealand players, but some of the opposition that they may have been coming up against. Um, yep. Well, we play against all teams in the world, uh, and as we've known, there have been some teams that have had, had allegations of corruption proven against them. Uh, but having said that, we have no suspicion of wrongdoing by any New Zealand player. Nothing has ever been brought to the attention of New Zealand cricket to suggest otherwise. He makes the comment too that, uh, I'm quoting him here, a whole generation of cricketers playing in the late 1990s must have known what was going on and did nothing. When they look back on their careers, a bit of shame must creep in. What do you make of those comments and why would he make them now? Are you able to guess? I'm not sure. I mean, I, I presume he is just trying to make the point that uh, once you have a, a very small minority of players corrupting the system, that after that time there can be question marks placed against results and performances from that era. Now, that's very unfortunate. I think it's a rather extreme view, but um, it is unfortunate that there have been players found guilty of match-fixing and corruption, but that, but that is something that the sport's looking to eradicate and will learn from how that has occurred, and I think the measures being put in place by the ICC's anti-corruption unit are very strong, and they are really leading this area for, for sport around the world. That's New Zealand Cricket's Chief Executive Justin Vaughan. You're listening to Extra Time, a web-only sports programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. It's more than 20 years since football was last played at Eden Park, but the Phoenix are banking on their home-away-from-home record, standing them in good stead against Adelaide in Saturday's A-League encounter. The last time a football match was played at Eden Park was the All-Whites' 1-0 loss to Israel in an Olympic qualifier in 1988, which Phoenix coach Ricky Herbert played in. It'll be the fourth time the Phoenix has hosted a home game away from their Wellington base, Two of those three previous games have been against this weekend's opposition, Adelaide United, and they both resulted in wins for the Phoenix. Buoyed by a draw with competition leaders Brisbane last round, Ricky Herbert's optimistic his side can move off the bottom of the A-League table, where they sit above only Gold Coast 
on gold difference. Good spring in the step. The first training session back was really lively, so um, that's good. And I think you know a few extra faces around the pitch doesn't do any harm either. So a um, little, little bit more to, to select from, hopefully. But uh, no, look, I was really pleased. I mean. As you know, teams have gone there in COP 7, 5, 3, whatever it's been, you know, so to come away with something from it was good. Um, yeah, I thought we were pretty resilient, really. Scored a good goal. This week, Ricky, is it a, is it a road trip? Is it a home game? How, how's it going to feel? Uh, let's hopefully it feels like a home game. Um, I guess it'll help with a few publics in around the seats and uh, we can only, um, you know, hope that that happens. Um, yeah, look, small trip up there, an hour on the plane. I mean, it's, it's, it's going to feel like we're, we're probably on the road again, but... Um, Oh, I, th- I think it's good to be around the country. I mean, Christchurch has been fantastic for us in the past. 20,000 has been the best down there, and 15 this year in Dunedin for a pre-season game. So, I mean, I think that helps a lot. So, yeah, let's, let's hope the Auckland fans can get out and, um, and make a difference for us. What do Auckland football fans need to do, though, to make sure the Phoenix keep coming back? I think just be visible at the game. You know, I think uh, crowd attendance is going to be really important. And, um, you know, I think not only for the Phoenix, I think, you know, National program kicks off next year, and I think there'll be you know World Cup opportunities, and um, you know I think the game in general with with a city that size um, really should be having that that type of football on a, on an annual basis. So yeah, I mean let's hope they turn up. I'm sure they will. Point to prove for them. I mean, given everything that's gone on with football in Auckland previously. Yeah, I mean they've had two chances, you know, and I think you can only look at that, and you know people can draw their own conclusions to it. But I think that's been pretty well documented and. You know, albeit a, a young club down here, I mean, this has been served extremely well. And um, but you know, we do want to take it around the country. And like I say, the the other places we've been to, people have come out in droves. And I think just as important for the kids as well. You know, I think there's World Cup players playing in this team. Uh, you know, there's some good A-League talent here. So um, you know, that sort of opportunity for kids to visibly see that. And I think you know, off the back of the World Cup, all those things are important. So. You know, it's on the doorstep in Auckland on Saturday night and, um, you know, a chance for everybody to be part of that. What are you expecting from Adelaide? Uh, look, I think, you know, back on track last week, good result for them. Um, I think they'll travel pretty buoyant. It's, it's so tight and congested in there, I think. You know, just that three points, or if you put a couple together, I think, you, you know, you're right back in the frame again. So, yeah, I think they'll come here with a, with a good spring in their step. But, you know, I think we were lively today and chance to go to Auckland, perform well again and, you know, if there's a good crowd there, you know, return it with a good result. So, um, yeah, we're pretty positive about Saturday. That's Wellington Phoenix football coach Ricky Herbert. And that brings us to the end of Extra Time for another week. Remember, if you have any feedback, you can email us at sport at radionz.co.nz. I'm Stephen Hewson. Bye for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.